Welcome to Farming Eternal, an eternal podcast for farmers hosted by me, Patrick, or Padumaru, and Hats on Lamps. It's episode 43. For those of you tuning in for the first time, we are a draft-focused podcast. Our goal is to help you and me, mostly me, get better at draft. We get into the nitty-gritty of the drafting process with a little meta-analysis and play tips thrown in. This week, we're going to talk about how our draft week went, thank our patrons, card of the week, seven-win run breakdown, our main topic is uh, New Year's resolutions, because it's the new year, new decade, I guess, uh, and reviewing a draft. So let's begin. So Hats, how was your draft week? Uh, it was okay. Um, I spent most of the month, uh, last month in December of 2019, uh, in the top 20, at times at rank one. Uh, but then right at the end, uh, there was some fierce competition for the top 20. A lot of people were playing uh, and raising and getting uh, getting pretty high in the ranks. And my rank was rapidly dropping from about nine where it was. Uh, so I got back into playing a little bit at the end of the month, uh, lost a, a, a few key games and dropped precipitously. Uh, so and then I went on a, bit, a little bit of a tilt spiral where I was in a bad mood from having lost so much, but continuing to play until I got a win uh, and it just uh, it just ended up where I was struggling to get back into the top 100. I did end up back in the top 100, um, but it was a frustrating and mostly negative process. And so uh, that's part of the inspiration for why I wanted to do New Year's resolutions this time. This is related to that. Uh, and then I've been drafting again this month, uh, and I, I really, really enjoy not having the pressure of uh, of maintaining my rank so i guess that's how my draft week went how did yours go <laughs> mine mine went pretty well uh like you yeah. mentioned there was fierce competition for top 20 and i was in contention i mentioned it in the last episode that i had graced rank 17 and then like you mentioned i dropped and dropped and dropped as everyone else graced <laughs> rank 17 it felt like but i kept playing and kept winning and so i kept getting myself back into top 20 and then not playing until i dropped out of top 20 and then i'd play a game win a couple games get back into top 20 stop playing and kept doing that for about a week where i'd play one or two games a day and was just very lucky um and managed to keep winning and so I ended up um, sort of New Year's Eve. I was ranked 21, and I was like, okay, I'll play one game. I played one game. I moved to rank 19. And then the big decision was, uh, do I play one more game to solidify my lead, or do I hope, because there's about six hours left till the, to the ladder reset, or do I hope rank 19 holds? And... This is all, you know, we joke about imaginary points, but because whatever tournament that this funnels into hmm. is going to be held probably on a Saturday or Sunday in the summer, I'm like 90% not able to play it. Sure. So these, <laughs> these, <laughs> these imaginary points You're are You're really just dream crushing someone else. Or <laughs> yeah, even more imaginary for me. Um, but this was the first month where I've really, since playing Eternal, had enough time to really devote 
to doing something like this kind of felt important. Like I was really trying really hard to get into the top 20, but I didn't have enough energy to play another draft if I lost. So, and I'm going to kind of wrap in a, a listener of the week with this one. Um, I don't actually know if he listens, but he does participate in the discord a lot. And that's collector. Who's an amazing player. He got second in an ECQ. I think got top four in the finals and has played some really cool decks in all of these major tournaments. So he was also trying to get into top 20. So he was kind of posting updates on every time I fell out of top 20. He'd be like, oh, hey, Potomaro, <laughs> you're ranked 22 again. I'd be like, oh, crap, I have to play another game. But uh, <laughs> And it was really great talking to him. But I kind of I messaged him that night, and I was like, should I just should I play a game and then risk sort of knocking myself out or should I just uh, just take my chances? And he gave me some pretty good advice. And so I decided to just go to bed and take my chances. And mm -hmm. I woke up and I was ranked 20. So nice, nice. only one person passed me. So if I felt very lucky because I really went to bed thinking I was not going to wake up in the top 20. Is this, this, is this your first month where you ended up in the top 20 of, since you began playing Eternal? Yeah, this is yeah. honestly only my third month making Masters. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> when I talked last week, or last episode, about how I'm really not sure what rank means, I still feel, still feel that a lot. But I would say the coolest part about being in the top, or playing in for the top 20, was just like how meaningful those last five or six games felt. And, like, this was not exactly, like, it was, like, three days before the ladder reset. And I got knocked down to 21 and was like, okay, time to play my game. And this was, like, that first time where I got knocked out of the top 20. And my deck was not particularly great. These My last six games that I won, I felt like I had a pretty, actually, mediocre deck. It was, it was like, a Xenon aggro deck with such classic aggro cards as um, like Dark Wisp and Pack Beast. I, I don't want to knock the deck too much because it, it did a lot of work, but um, I was playing this really intense game and I felt like I really needed to get lucky to win the games. And so I maddening whispered my opponent's whole board and I attacked in, got them to four. And then on their turn, and the two of the cards that Madden whispered were a Marizo and an unblockable Bane Wolf. So I was, it, I mean, it was not, not looking gonna, good. They're not going to replay both of those, though. They're not, no. So I was like, oh, I think I have this. Because I had like two or maybe three creatures on board. None of them very big. And so they were down at four life. And so what they did on their turn was immortalize a 4-3 Nahid's Faithful and a razor quill okay. and i was like oh crap i lost this game <laughs> yeah yeah immortalizing the heat's faithful is a real good way to shut down mm -hmm. a, uh, is real real good way to stabilize is what i mean my opponent did misplay in that they didn't decimate because i think they didn't want to knock themselves off seven power sure um so then on my turn i drew an immortalize and I was like, okay, well, I really think I lost this game. So I just did an, uh, an all-out attack, because I think I had two four-power creatures. And I was like, I could hopefully trade off the Nahid's Faithful 
get some damage in, and then try to figure out how to win this game. And so I kill their Nahid's Faithful. I think they chump block with the Razor Quill. They don't die. They're now at eight life. And then I immortalize. And I realized that I had a Praxis Displacer in my graveyard, which would have been great. You could have. <laughs> you mean you had the, the seven power to... I had the seven power, yeah. I see. And... I had never felt such a sinking feeling. Like, like you've thrown like, that one away, only... yeah. yeah. And then 15 turns later, I won that game. <laughs> On the power of Dark Wisp, I hope. <laughs> I was, actually, it was, it was on the power of my opponent playing very conservatively. Sure. Um, yeah, you can win games if your opponent refuses to attack because their life total is low. That's, a, that's one solid way to win a game. I felt like this whole last week has been this uh, up and down roller coaster of that kind of feeling where the games felt, I think, more intense and important than any games I've really played in Eternal. And then I think that one game, like misplaying so badly and almost losing the game, really helped me focus for the rest of my games. Yeah. Because I would have been really upset if I had like ruined my chances of getting top 20 on such a really like such a bad misplay where I had I had like all the pieces to win the game that turned and then yeah. just didn't see it. Yeah, that would be rough. Yeah. I mean you were it, bound to make some mistakes during some of those games. Yeah. It's very hard to play a game of Eternal without making a mistake, period. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I agree. And that that'll get to our some of my New Year's resolutions. <laughs> Um, but anyway, that's enough about me, I think. Um, shall we move to uh, thanking our patrons? Like sort of the uh, title says, we do have a Patreon at patreon.com slash farmingeternal. This is a place where people who listen to the show can sort of contribute money to keep the show running. Um, it helps pay for serving server fees and things like that, as well as allows us to do kind of these fun stretch goals that we have. And right now we have two stretch goals. One is our live show at $50. And then another is raffling off coaching sessions with hats if we reach $75. So for as little as a dollar a month, you can get access to our show notes, recording bloopers, um, and also nudge us towards our Patreon goals. So once again, thank you to all our patrons, Big Salty, Titus and Blossom, Parmalee, Toku, Darth Herman 2, Twin Hex, Cassandrith, Jed the Hamrid, Raven Dragon, Srich0215, Sunblaze, Work Done Sun, and Yistout. And um, I would also like to mention, Parmalee said that joining our Patreon was the best dollar a month he's ever spent. That's very sweet. Yeah. I mean, I think it's because it forces me to say his name every week. But that is a direct quote. Let's move to card of the week. What's oh, your card wow. of the week? Look at you. Wow. Posting pictures. Uh-huh. Yeah. I updated our show notes. And yeah. for a mere, for if you if you contribute a dollar to the Patreon, you get to see them. It's super cool. <laughs> a lot of what I say is the exact opposite of what I wrote. <laughs> yeah. I, I will say there was a, a small divergence between what you said, your how your week went, and what you wrote, how your week went. So my card of the week this week is Gaudy Showman, which is the three fire four one summon exhausted enemy unit, and it's an Oni Rogue. This is my card of the week because this might be low-key my favorite card of the set. This card did so much work for me in my run up to getting into the top 20, where I just I don't know if forcing is the right word, 
but I kept finding my way into fire fire X decks. And I felt like any deck of mine that had, say, three gaudy showmans just couldn't lose. That's interesting. What's weird is I have this weird cognitive dissonance where I'm like, well, this isn't the best fire common. You know, like everyone says that like War Brushoni, probably the best fire common. Yeah, I would dispute that, but yeah. What would you call the best fire common? Probably Warhorn. Yeah, I'm a little down on Warhorn, but that's sort of besides the point. Well, I was just thinking that Warbrush Oni is uh, is definitely a playable card, and I'm not usually sad to pick one up, but I do think it must be overrated if people are calling it the best common, because I don't think it's powerful on that level. I think it's fine for a two-drop. I guess maybe it's just because the fire commons aren't like massively powerful in general, and so, sure, maybe it's the best one, but uh, I wouldn't... I would say that fire what the fire commons work together to create a strategy rather than having a whole bunch of individually powerful cards the way that time and justice do yes i agree and that's i think one of the deceiving parts about fire and it's kind of this is a sneak preview foreshadowing of our next episode where i think we're going to talk about a fire aggressive decks yeah and i would love to because i've had the same experience as you where sometimes i just put a bunch of not great fire cards together in a deck and then go 7-0 easily. Yes. And I have had the same experience. And for me, it's weird because I think if I, if the two of them in a, were in a pack, Warbrushoni and the Gaudy Showman, I would probably take the Warbrushoni. And I don't know why, because when I'm playing that when I've been playing these fire decks, it felt like every game, I'm like, as long as I draw my Gaudy Showman here, I'm going to win the game. Yeah. And, me saying that happens a lot more with Gaudy Showman than a card like Warbrush Oni. Just, I think, an unassuming card, but it is deceptively powerful in the kind of decks that fire decks want to be in this format. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I've gone back and forth on the card myself a little bit because I, I wanted it seemed like such a, a solid card to play on three for fire that I was picking them up pretty high at the uh at the beginning Mm -hmm. and then i thought well you know there's a lot of decks where it doesn't seem to be at its best and so i would i would cut uh a gaudy showman if i had more than two of them um and i i think that's probably right for some decks but there's uh if you if you start picking up a lot of those uh really aggressive two drops then the gaudy showman just puts your opponent in a real bad spot right from the beginning because then you you like you've made contact with like a teething whelp or or anything else that could make contact i mean basically what gaudy showman does is it spoils your opponent's plans for the turn you know they set things up so that they're okay yeah for that turn like they've stabilized they've got a plan to block all of your stuff and maybe get their game plan rolling and then Gaudi Showman's like no not this turn maybe you'll be able to do that next turn but not this turn because whatever you were planning has to be completely reevaluated and removal is the same thing like it it spoils your opponent's plans for the turn but it doesn't put a body on the board and Gaudi Showman does and yeah. so uh not only did your opponent not get to execute their plan for defense now they have an additional thing that they need to deal with a 4-1 uh, and it's not hard to block a 4-1, but it's one additional card has to be devoted to doing that. So they have to make a new plan. And then if your uh, aggressive deck is built pretty well, then you will continue to make their life hard for turn after turn and and 
So yeah, it's an integral part of that plan. I think that's the thing about it is because if you look at it, you're like, oh, well, you're only allowing one extra attack with this card by exhausting a unit. But the fact that next turn you're attacking with a 4-1, and then if your opponent has stumbled at all, they have to make the decision, do they block your 2-drop and take 4 more damage? Or do they block the 4-1 to get the four, you know, this 4-attack unit off the board, probably lose their unit in the process, and now your 2-drops hit them again? And you still have a, you know, you still have attackers on the board. And now on your turn, you, now it's turn four. Maybe you've played two more two drops, and now you have three two drops on the board. And then if you say draw a second gaudy showman, you're then getting in damage again. And then all of a sudden, your opponent's on four five life, and you can just a space and lose a bunch of units, but kill them. And I yeah. feel like gaudy showman does a great job at game plans like that. And they're, like you mentioned, decks that when you look at the cards or you look at Gaudi Showman, you're like, none of these cards are really good. But they're very good for a certain style of play. And I was having a lot of success this last week where I I think I had uh, five of my six decks in um, Stone Scar decks, but they were all aggressive Stone Scar decks. And four of them I got seven wins with. Yeah, and and you might... Uh, remember from one or two episodes ago where I had just had uh, three seven-win drafts in a row and all of them were fire decks. Two yeah. of them were aggressive Stone Scar and one was aggressive Praxis. Yeah. So it's a, I, I don't know if that deck is always available. I feel like I've had a few drafts where it just isn't. But there, it does seem like the meta of the, of the draft format kind of shifts sometimes to where fire will be open a few drafts in a row. And then, yeah, if, you, if you're willing to jump in on that, it can be super good. And Gaudi Showman, like if you looked at the deck list, I felt like was not the best card in the deck. But it honestly felt in all my games, it was the card that won me more games. Yeah, well, it allows other cards to shine, because if yes. a card is getting outclassed on the board, Gaudi Showman gives it another attack, you know. Also, Gaudi Showman really lines up well against some of the defensive cards, like Boroni. Oni Stalwart, uh, Stalwart can't, can't, or the can't Swing Seekirin. Yeah, it can block it, but it trades Swing Seekirin, exactly. Yeah, there's nothing on there's nothing for three costs that has more than four toughness, so Gaudi Showman at least gets to attack during those mm-hmm. early turns, no matter what definitely trades with something um, and continues to deplete your opponent's defensive resources. So yeah, I don't know. It's definitely a good, it's an important part of that kind of deck. And I don't know how powerful it is overall because it is narrow, but as long as uh, really aggressive decks are good in this format, then Gaudi Showman's good. Kind of wanted to do that as a sneak peek for our conversation next week. So what's your card of the week? Uh, My card of the week is Initiation Bell. Uh, this is part of the um, the curated draft packs. It's not a Flames of Zolta card. Uh, I don't know how long this card has been around, actually. I could have looked it up, but uh, I think it's been around a bit. And uh, it is a relic. It is a It costs three time, and it says, Once per turn, you may pay one to create and draw a 2-2 monk with endurance if you have played a spell this turn. And... Uh, as is usual for my cards of the week, it's not so much that this is a good card, but that it's an interesting card. I've played against it a surprising amount in this format because I have never put it in a deck. I've <laughs> drafted it before in packs where I just didn't have another strong pick, and I've never had a deck where it seemed like, yep, this is the time. I got enough spells. 
there's some advantage to putting down a bunch of 2-2 monks once I have cast spells because it seems terrible, but I've been beaten by it a couple of times. And I don't want to just dismiss that as a card being sort of randomly powerful in a deck that was short on playables or something. It, it, I've lost to it uh, as part of the purposeful strategy of playing a bunch of... Like, I recently, I think today, I lost to a deck pl- uh, that was Fire Time Primal and had, like, some Wizened Crones in it, although I didn't see any payoffs for them. They were there. And uh, the Echo Looting Blue spell and probably some yetis that make snowballs and they ended up casting something like six spells after the initiation bell came down made a swarm of monks had no way of making them better but just kind of went wide and attacked me to zero and it was like well that seemed like it was done on purpose (laughs) like that didn't seem like an accident where the card was randomly good it looks like that was their strategy but if they hadn't drawn initiation bell what would have happened I don't know if they would have beaten me or not, but that's the question uh, when putting a card like that in your deck because there's no other card that does that. So (laughs) if you don't draw your initiation bell, is your strategy still going to work? I don't know. I don't know how many spells you need, and it's it's basically the only spells matter card in the... spells matters card in the entire format. So it's a a mystery to me how you end up in a deck like that. But uh, again, I don't want to dismiss it just because it doesn't seem like a good strategy because you sometimes you can't execute one of your preferred strategies and you've got to do something weird and then execute it well. So how do you get into an initiation bell deck? I'm not expecting you to have an answer, and I certainly don't have an answer. I just think it's an interesting question. I I don't know. What's interesting about this card is, because we kind of mentioned it when we're talking about my card, is with Warhorn. And one of the reasons I'm a little bit down on Warhorn is I've been surprised about sort of how little the 2-2s do in that deck. Mm-hmm. Like, you draw a 2-2, you play a 2-2, but that I feel like the 2-2s end up being almost incidental. This is mostly from my opponents playing a Warhorn, where it's often felt like the games that Warhorn wins are because they played it on a flyer and I couldn't deal with it. But I'm never like oh no, my opponent played a Warhorn and attacked in one time and got a 2-2 because the 2-2s feel almost meaningless against a lot of decks. You know, like once you start playing Grodov's Favored or in this format, Big Flyers and stuff, little guys, unless your opponent's being very aggressive, don't really help that much. And like a card like Initiation Bell, which is not on its face an aggressive card, unlike Warhorn, which is like, also helping you on the board you know you would imagine more aggressive decks are playing warhorn but initiation bell you're like taking a turn off to play this and then you also need enablers and then all you get is a tutu out of it it just uh it doesn't seem like it could possibly be good yeah and you have to pay one on top of the spell to even draw the monk and then you have to play the monk for two it's very expensive like, if you get to activate it once in your game, then you have used six power over the course of at least two turns <laughs> to make one 2-2 two, two endurance monk. Like, yeah. so that's not great. <laughs> and if you do it again, uh, then you've spent not nine power over the course of at least three turns to make two 2-2 two, two monks. Also not great. There is never a point where the initiation bell looks like a good investment of resources. 
and yet it is essentially like drawing a card every time you activate it. And yeah. that's uh, it's a weird card for sure. And I don't know what the strategy is, because most of the time I feel like I've got other cards that do its job better. Um, but I think it's a it's similar to the rings in this respect. Uh, the, <laughs> the time one that makes a one one every turn or the emerald ring, which makes a plus one plus one weapon in that it doesn't it's not if you actually if you break it down like that like here's how much i get for the amount of power investment it's always terrible um but the fact that you can do it forever and there's sort of an unlimited amount of value you can get off of the card is what makes it good sometimes um and i don't understand these kind of cards well enough instinctively to be able to really evaluate them well i think that's part of why i don't take uh, em emerald rings and yet sometimes i lose to them and it's baffling um, to me. Uh, I don't quite understand how to play cards like that well and which decks want them and which decks don't. It's a, a hole in my limited gameplay that I, I want to fill. Well, because a lot of those cards, I think, and this one included, feel not... Win more is not quite the right word. Really good when they're good and really bad when they're bad. And I think in a lot of instances you and I would rather just have in average or above average card in that slot that does something yeah. every game. And like with like an Emerald Ring, it's like, well, I'd almost rather just have a unit because the unit will at least do something while there's a lot more sort of fail cases for an Emerald Ring. There sure are, yeah. I don't want to get into like sort of holistic deck theory uh, now because I haven't thought enough about it. I would need to like really write down some notes for that topic. But uh, just how many slots in a limited deck can be devoted to specific purposes. And I, I think uh, there's a lot of decks that want some kind of inevitability that trumps their opponent's inevitability. Um, and if you don't have something like Kodash Sees All or uh, a, a flyer that is essentially impossible to block um, or that you can keep bringing back, uh, something like that, then something like Initiation Bell or, or Emerald Ring just serves that function. Because it clearly doesn't serve a function of uh, tempo and not really card advantage because every advantage it creates is not really worth a card. Mm -hmm. um, but it does eventually win you the game over time, so it gives you inevitability. And possibly it's, it's, you, it's good to have a card like that because um, you're going to get... You know, you're going to get things like board stalls, or if you might be playing a deck that is expecting to get board stalls because you don't have the power to to play a strong tempo game or whatever. Um, so I think it's probably something to do something to do with that, um, and it's probably something that can be quantified and talked about uh, with a little bit more detail than I've done here. And so maybe that's a future show topic that we're we're seeding now. Um, but. Uh, uh, but I think it's an interesting card, and I'm I'm always really interested to see people playing it to see how it's going to go for me after that thing is on the table. Because clearly sometimes people have played it, and then they basically threw away a card in their hand and I won the game. Uh, but the times when my opponent have had some sort of insight and been like, you know what, I can execute this plan now, this weird Spells Matters plan in a, in a format that doesn't support it at all. I'm going to do it. And then they do it. I'm like, well, I'm going to pay attention. So we move on to seven win run breakdown? Yes, we should. Okay, so this is our long-standing data collection project here at Farming Eternal, where our listeners email us their seven win drafts to farmingeternal@gmail.com or post them on the seven win channel of the Farming Eternal Discord, where we accept exported deck lists and any kind of Eternal Warcry link. 
We take this information from our listeners, compile it into a spreadsheet, and do some analysis on it and hope to draw some conclusions. And then we try to share those conclusions with our listeners. So the first thing we do is thank John Holio for actually doing all the work. And then we thank all the listeners who sent in less. So our new contributors, and we have a few this week, are One-Eyed Jack, Chatted, Inoperable, King Neb, Nothership's Dad, who did a draft, Skodo, and Vader, as well as our veteran contributors, Agent Dynamo, Ant-Man Rising, Ben Gracer, Charmish, Collector, Damien R., Darth Herman II, E. Moneybag, Gato Sujo, Hats on Lamps, Jacob P., Jed the Homerid, Joey Andy Juve, Jose Carlos2121, Jungle Spider, Cassandrith, Kidlit1490, Meagles, Mercurio Blue, Nothership, Out on a Limb, Patomaru, Raven Dragon, Reprieve, Rofer, Sakarnan, SSJ1997, Spiffy Man, Starstorm, Tarzan, Tempest Dragon King, Titus and Blossom, and Twin Hex. All right, well, thank you. We obviously got a lot of people sending in deck lists uh, this past uh, two weeks, so we appreciate it. Is there any change in uh, in the meta analysis? Like, are are cards rising or falling? Factions rising or falling? Yeah, we um, haven't. We still don't have the card of the the card by card spreadsheet sort of up and running. Um, ben sort of taking a hiatus, kind of put a bit of damper in that. And I didn't spend very much time working on it because, as I mentioned in my, how my draft week went, I spent a lot of time trying to get into the top 20. So I was maybe a little negligent on both editing the podcast and doing sort of podcast-related extracurricular activities. But as far as the faction breakdowns, it's very similar. Um, time and Shadow continue to be the best. Fire kind of picked up a little bit. Justice stayed about the same, and Primal stayed in its sort of crappy last place. The things that really jump out is we got a lot of Combray decks these last two weeks. So Combray once again overtook Xenon as the top color pair. And the other thing that's I think really of note is just how many decks have splashed. So about a little over 40% of decks have splashes. And most of those splashes, like we mentioned last week, are primal. People are playing a lot more sort of two, three color decks. I personally have found I'm a little bit more comfortable splashing as I get more familiar with a format mm -hmm. uh, because I sort of know what splashes I'm likely to be able to pull off whereas at first it's almost completely experimental like is this even going to work um yeah but uh, like I do I mean I'll pick up those sort of splashable primal cards a little bit easier now for example you know like I'll just take a lightning sprite no matter what or a permafrost no matter what because I'll probably be able to play the thing and another, another thing that often happens is if I'm in a uh, time and something else, I'll, I'll pick up uh, like champion grapplers in, in pack two because mm -hmm. I'm fairly sure I'll be able to throw throw in some fire influence and play them. And it's usually worth doing that. So, yeah, that kind of thing that uh, that I tend to avoid at first when I'm exploring a format because I just want to make sure that I have enough playables and, and, and so... And, re and I'm reading signals, right, and all of that stuff. Uh, so I usually play two faction decks, and then I start playing uh, splashes more comfortably. So maybe people are doing that kind of as a group. I will sort of clarify what I just said. And mm -hmm. people aren't really playing three colors very yeah. often. And what, what we consider three colors is if your splash is 
more than four cards. So we consider like four cards of a third color to still be a splash. And like the 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 most played three color deck is Carindin, which is Time Justice Shadow, which makes sense because all three of them are pretty good. But of our 189 decks, we only have six Carindin decks. And that is the most popular three color deck to just show you how few um, three color decks there are. As compared and- to, to like uh, Combray, you know, we have 26 Combray decks, we have 25 Xenon decks. We, of course, only have. <laughs> five skycrag decks skycrag is not doing great no the whole the whole giving them yetis thing didn't really work out uh the yeti synergies don't come together nearly often enough to make it a good risk yeah they don't and i think the other problem is when they do come together you still end up just playing them in um elysian yeah that's fair you're just like oh i got three um slope sergeants and then I have some Yeti tra- traditionalists. I have a few evangels, and I have like, and I have some great time cards, and we'll call it a deck. Yeah, I've uh, played slope sergeants for the for like the discard synergy before, you know, in like a Feln deck, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I got all this Yeti synergy in my Feln deck. The discard powers up my Fear Stoker Raven or something. You know, it's not a Yeti thing. It's just like, oh, they've got us. I've got this great card selection, and that helps my deck operate better. So, yeah, the idea of putting Skycrag Yetis and then also, uh, like, Wizard Crones and stuff and, like, powering up your Snowballs and all of that uh, comes together so rarely that I, I, I sort of wish they had devoted more deck slots to other cards than Yetis in that first pack because so many of the Primal cards in that first pack are tiny Yetis. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's like there are three... Like there's the there's there's the two one for one, there's the two one for two, there's the two two for two. That's three of the pushed primal commons, the boosted primal commons. I know. Like, and what's <laughs> I don't get what's so weird is they're like all essentially the same card with a different keyword. Yes. It's that's like, right. Yeah, they all like, make a snowball if they do a different thing. It's yeah. like that's great for consistency. That's that that should be. But yeah. it ends up me feeling like, well, like if this doesn't come together. All of these cards are worthless. And I don't know, the snowball just is not, I feel like, worth the effort. I mean, it's like, uh, what's the the 2-2 two, two for 2 with the infiltrate snowball? Like a teething well, that's worth working for to get it to infiltrate. The 2-2 two, two that turns into a 4-4, four, four, that I'll work for to make sure that infiltrates. The 2-2 two, two that draws me a snowball, I'm like, I'm not wasting a card to like convert it into a snowball. Do you feel differently if you've devoted three or four slots in your deck to Wizened Crones so your Snowball does two damage? (laughs) (laughs) Then will you work hard? (laughs) I'm not sold on that, but I will say that there are some very good players that do play this Fire Primal deck with their two damage Snowballs and manage to do well with it. But like maybe this is kind of like Initiation Bell, where I just like look at it and I'm on... On the face of it, it just does not seem powerful enough to me. And so I just can't bring myself to get into it. But some people figure out how to make it work. And I just don't understand how it's like, for them, it seems like two plus two equals five somehow. And I just look at it and I'm like, well, both of these are like actually just a one. 
So, so even if you add them together, I don't have, know how you get Even if bat. I throw in an extra one or two, it's still just four. It's not worked out. <laughs> um, but yeah. So on to our main topic. Why don't you take it away? Because this is your idea. What's my idea? Uh, and as I said, uh, it, it kind of came to me after playing uh, several days of Eternal in a row and not really having that much fun with it. And uh, I thought, you know, I am most interested in Eternal when I feel like I'm growing at it. And uh, that's really the most reward for me. I, I am competitive and I do like like uh, competing for rank in a sense. But uh, I, I think it was important for me to ask myself whether that was more important or uh, or my general mental health. Like, which one of those <laughs> is a more important thing? And I'm I'm, I'm going to be an adult and say that my general mental health is more important. So I want to refocus uh, a little bit. So I thought uh, my idea was that we would we would have three like New Year's resolutions just for Eternal uh, to make us better Eternal players and, and possibly healthier Eternal players. Uh, and we could just talk about that a little bit. And hopefully people uh, listening can relate to those things and say, you know what, I might want to try that too. Or I'm just glad that someone else is as neurotic as me or whatever their thought might be. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I'll just jump right into it. My first one is play only when it's fun. And that I think is important for playing well and for mental health. I play really badly when I am losing uh, and that's just that's just tilt that's that's called playing on tilt uh, and it's a, a really identifiable feeling you know I can tell like I can feel it in my brain almost physically like you like it's there's part of me that's going you do not know how to play this game right anymore uh, mm. and yet you're still doing it but I'm much more likely to jump back into a draft if I've lost the last one really badly than if I've won. A lot of times when I win a draft, I'm like, great, I, I did it. I, I won Eternal. I'm done for the day. Uh, and it's a struggle to even get back in the, in the queue if I feel like, no, maybe I could play a little bit more because I want to have something else to talk about on my podcast or whatever. But if I lose, I will play any number of games until I start winning again. Uh, and it feels more like gambling at that point than it does like playing a game. And I want to avoid that. Like, I want to sort of get back to a state where the only reason I'm playing is because it's a hobby that I love, uh, not so much an obligation. I <laughs> started feeling like it was an obligation before I was on this podcast, back when I first like made rank one and held on to it for a little while. I was like, oh, now I you know, now part of my life is is maintaining being one of the best limited players of Eternal. And I think freeing myself of the responsibility to do that is uh, would be super good. And also, I'm more able to um, make good observations about the game and have insights if I'm not afraid of losing. Because part of being a really good limited player is being flexible. And when I'm afraid of losing, I'm less flexible. Uh, I'm like, I got to, you know, draft only the best strategies and only the best archetypes and like make the best card evaluations. And I think that leaves out the part of the game that lets you play cards like Initiation Bell or like Skycrag, you know, Wizard Crone decks and all of that kind of thing. Well, because you never learn how to do those things because they're mm -hmm. too risky. They're, uh, and once you become risk averse, uh, yeah, you become a worse player. Uh, it's a very, very complicated game with a lot of moving parts uh, and it would be very I don't know if the word what the word is but uh, it's very prideful to think mm -hmm. that I've already mastered it 
But after you win like three drafts in a row, which I've done a few times, it it feels like, oh, I figured this game out. And then I realized I haven't. And it's like, maybe I could have not had that whole experience be such a roller coaster and just say, hey, great. I won a few games in a row. I've learned some things uh, that I shouldn't expect to keep winning. I feel like a lot of that resonates with me where when I lose, I'm much more likely to redraft and requeue and use up all my gold and then <laughs> start breaking into my gems and just get angrier and angrier. Part of the problem is because off the days where I can do multiple drafts are few and far between. So when I start one of those days with like two one threes in a row, and I was like, oh, well, today was my day to like draft. And then I'm just like, I keep drafting even though I'm not having fun anymore. But I'm but I have this mix of where I want to turn my luck around. But also, I'm like, well, I'm like sick in bed today. So I'm like, all I have to do is, the only thing I have to do today is draft. So I just have to keep drafting. And I get into these spirals. The one thing, and this will kind of talk a little bit about my resolution, is like I use the term sort of tilting off and keep drafting. But I, I sometimes have trouble seeing what I'm doing wrong that's like causing me to get these strings of losses where I don't feel like I'm playing worse. I don't feel like I'm at first drafting worse by the end where I'm just like only drafting horrible JPS curse discard. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, can curse, I make a discard curse mill discard self mill? <laughs> <laughs> removal pile <laughs> sacrifice deck i can do that right yeah yeah that you know that's when i know things have really gone off the rails but like there's like this period in between where i'm just like i don't understand why why i'm losing i don't feel like i'm playing poorly i don't feel like my decks are bad and i'm just like this is like my fourth one two or two three in a row and it's just like it's just infuriating. And then I just blame it because I, I consider myself like a fairly unlucky person, which is obviously not true since I had a few fairly good lucky runs there. But yeah, it's just like, uh, I don't know. It's weird where I, yeah, I just have trouble seeing what I'm doing wrong and then figuring out what to change. And then the other thing that was kind of interesting about what you said is, the other thing I, sh I struggle with a little bit is like you were talking about like, oh, I won three drafts in a row. I figured out this format and I almost have the exact opposite problem where even when I'm doing well, I'm constantly second guessing myself mm -hmm. and worrying that I'm doing it wrong. And it's just like when I went on that hot streak with all of these stone scar ducks and I was like, I felt like I really figured out a strategy that was working well with me and I was winning a lot of games. And then I'd go into a draft and be like, oh, I'm probably trying to force Stone Scar here. So I better just like take only non-fire shadow cards to make sure that I'm not forcing it. And then I like derail myself because I'm worrying that I'm like uh, that I'm forcing a deck just because I had success with it. And not really, and sort of like losing sort of objective focus, where I almost like psych myself out of good decks because I'm worried that I'm drafting improperly or whatever, even though I'm having success with it. 
I think that's a good thing to be aware of. If you're having success, go ahead and trust it for sure. Also, if you're doing well, it's not necessarily luck. You might have actually worked hard and improved at the game <laughs> and can take some credit for that. I think that's a fair thing. Uh, there's a very small handful of people that ended up in the top 20. So even if you had a couple of very lucky runs, uh, uh, you did a good job getting there, you know? Yeah. Yeah, well, that deck where I was, uh, I won six games in a row with to keep myself in the top 20, the January 1st, I immediately lost two games in a row with sure. it. And went well, that's luck, sure. <laughs> that <laughs> part's luck. <laughs> uh, but, I'm not saying there's no luck in Eternal. No, no, like, <laughs> no, but it was just like, the, if I, just in case I need to be put in my place. I was yeah. like, You're on oh, the no, job. It's, I can, <laughs> I'm still able to lose at this game. Yeah. Number two is, uh, is, is trust your instincts. Uh, I think I have very good instincts about this game. Um, like a lot of, like, I actually think that I was, was playing a little bit better in some ways, uh, before I started getting more involved in the community and trying to figure out like what other people were drafting and started looking at tier lists and things like that. Uh, and uh, that doesn't mean that other people were making mistakes, but that I had a style that was working for me, uh, mm. and um, and and incorporating. Uh, I don't really like tier lists because I think that the tier lists are based on uh, the people creating the tier lists' particular set of skills. There's a lot of skills in in limited and playing limited, and so uh, some cards are clearly more powerful than others. Uh, so tier lists aren't completely. Uh, uh, in not valuable, but they are. Um, I th I think if you just rate cards without taking into account, um, I don't think I'm saying anything new here, really. Uh, I think if you just rate cards without taking into account like the kind of decks that you like to play and uh, how good you are at like reading a board and like all of the sort of things that make certain types of cards really good. Uh, if you t if if you take part of someone's philosophy of of limited play, um, then uh, it might not help you that much. Like it might do more harm than good. Because like let's say I let's let's say for just uh, just for an example that um, that I was only good at playing aggressive fire decks, uh, like okay. we've been talking about, and um, and then I looked at the rating for a card like uh, Kodosh sees all. And was like, oh, that's like a seven or whatever this person has rated it. Well, then I'm definitely going to start throwing Kodosh Seas all into my aggressive justice decks, you know, like my Rakano decks that I like to play with my Onis. And then somehow that wouldn't work out for me. I'd be like, well, that person is wrong and they're wrong about everything, you know. <laughs> like, but but I would be like, I would have lost some games, and I would like, it's hard to tell uh, what the difference is between that that gut feeling uh, that I've developed through playing games my whole life. And then the advice someone else has recently given me about that exact situation. And that can get confusing because once I start mixing those two things together, that's when I find myself lost in the middle of a draft. I'm like, I have no idea which of these cards is good right now because I don't know whether I'm listening to myself or like all of the other information that I've absorbed this week. And, and obviously all that stuff integrates into a, an overall like outlook on a format or, on a, or a game or something eventually. But I, go th I, th I think I end up lost a lot when I, I get too far away from sort of my own natural ability to analyze a game like this. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to get back to that a little bit because I think I was a better 
I think I was a more consistent player when I was making my own analysis on cards and and really like trusting that sort of. I like I get a feeling when my uh, when my opponent plays a card. I'm sure everyone does uh, when my opponent plays a card. That's like, uh oh, that's going to be hard to deal with. Or and I get the same feeling like when I play a card, I'm like, my opponent's going to have a hard time dealing with this. And I think in a way, no matter no no amount of of cerebral analysis of uh, eternal cards can replace that mm-hmm. instinctive like that feeling the same thing like when you catch a ball like don't think too hard about catching the ball just catch the stupid thing it's a little bit like that where you really do know what cards are good and what cards are bad but then you don't trust your own knowledge and you and you look to other people as an authority and uh and and then things can get confused i think uh and it ties into what you were saying where like you can be doing really well but then not necessarily trust that your instincts are what are bringing you there uh it's that you kind of are going to need to to reevaluate because you must be on some sort of a lucky streak. But no, part of it is that your instincts brought you there, not just on card evaluation, but on what other people are doing that are leaving these kinds of cards in the packs and allowing you to draft this kind of deck. Yeah. Um, I've gone through entire formats where I sort of draft was drafting a type of deck, usually an aggressive red deck, that other people weren't valuing high enough because I just had the instinct that that was going to be the way to go for a while. Uh, and just like one all the time. And I think those things happen all the time. Like the meta will shift and be like, hey, there's this kind of card seems to be available a lot more than it used to be. And my instinct tells me to jump on that. But the advice that everyone's given me, such as like, you know, you just take Grodov's favorite over everything else will interfere with it. And then I'll end up in a bad time deck because I saw a couple of Grodov's favorites and I didn't trust my instinct that it was still a good idea to going to do whatever it is that I'm talking about that I should have been doing. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I've been thinking about this a little bit because um, I kind of been hanging out a little bit in the main eternal discord, the, the draft section. And there's a couple players in there who are often hanging out and helping people with their drafts in sort of a what's the pick kind of way. And our drafting styles are so different and we end up arguing about these picks and like this is sort of solidified my thoughts well solidified we we had an argument about fire and they were sort of talking about how you wanted to avoid fire because there's no really good fire cards and i was like i think fire is actually really strong and really great but i agree there's no good fire cards but it, it i think think it really speaks to your instinct thing where you're just like yes there's no way for me to like really explain what i mean but I'm telling you, Gaudy Showman is the best card in this deck. <laughs> it's like, you know, and I know it's not the best card. Like the analogy that I think of a little bit is is like cards like Opt or Brainstorm or Ponder from Magic, where you're just like, well, this is just like a, a one mana cantrip that doesn't really do anything. And then and when you don't really understand the game, that's all it is to you. You're like, oh, this isn't really a card. And then you're like, no, this is like the best card in your deck. It it doesn't win you the game, but it actually is the card that wins you the game because it helps you find the card that will eventually win the game for you. I mean, this was like a small example. I guess my, my greater point was, despite us having three what's the pick channels in our Discord, it's just like I was thinking a lot this week sort of about how both useful and useless those are. Because like one of the things I worry about is you sort of like what you're saying is you 
you post a pic, people give their suggestions. And because there's no right way, and I think this is a fact that people don't appreciate enough, but the more I do this podcast, the more I believe there's like really no right way to draft. There's no objective, correct way. There's a lot of ways that fit well with the drafter. And so I think you really need to use these like what's the pick or getting advice. You need to really listen to that advice through the lens of the kind of drafter you are and use it to help you understand as compared to just take it as fact. Because, you know, one of the things I was thinking about is I was helping, you know, giving advice on picks and stuff. And then these people were drafting decks that I would I would draft like with these like f- aggressive fire decks. And I was like, well, they might not play this deck the way I would play it. And the deck just might not be very good for their play style. So I'm like leading them to this, to this deck. And I'm like, at the end, I'm like, wow, this is a really great deck. I, I would love to play this deck. And then you like, look at it and you're like, well, none of these cards are really good. So if they're not playing as instinctively aggressive as I am, this deck might not actually work for them. And, you know, I think this really touches on the fact that, like you said, you just need to trust your instinct. And, like, our Discord and this podcast are, like, great resources, and they give a lot of ideas and a lot of different opinions and stuff. But all of that is really there for you to take in and absorb, but you have to be able to mesh that with your own play styles and your own ideas and then... Use it to just like inform your own your own ideas yeah. as compared to take it as fact because yeah. it might not be fact for you. Yeah, I don't I I don't entirely understand the drafts where we go through on the on the Discord where we go through every single pick. Although they they often uh, result in really good decks, <laughs> but I I, I think uh, in the long run it's sort of a teach a teach a person how to fish kind of a thing and. Uh, like any any advice is only going to be valuable if you sort of understand the reasoning behind it. But I do think, you know, if you use those kind of resources correctly and, you know, the picks turn into discussions and you're just kind of like, oh, the, you know, this is what I'm thinking because this goes with these cards. And I think it is helpful because in some aspects, because sometimes people do see things that you just don't see. Oh, and they're sure. Just, and, you know, they're like, hey, did you, you notice like this card goes with three of your other cards in your deck in these ways. And you're like, oh, I would have never actually thought about that. So I don't want to say it's like a totally useless thing. But oh, when no. it's just like someone saying like, oh, you should pick that card and then you pick that card. I don't think that's actually a useful exercise, both because you might not be you might be learning. You're learning what that person, what cards that person evaluates the highest not necessarily how to draft the best deck for you. And also, I think the other th- the other takeaway from this is sometimes you will have a very like sometimes or sometimes I have a very strong feeling about a deck when I like look at a list like here are these cards and then there will be a couple of cards that are objectively great cards, but I want to take them out of the deck really badly and replace them with other things. And there's times when I don't do that because I'm like, there's no way. There's no way that I should be taking an intrepid longhorn out of this comrade deck or whatever, you know, like, but I'll bet I was right. Like for whatever the reason, I, I, I would have to describe the entire deck list to you to explain why taking an intrepid longhorn out of a comrade deck was the right decision in this instance. But it probably was. 
and yeah. be, the fact that I couldn't like explain every step to myself of why I had that instinct uh, doesn't mean that it was wrong. It, it just means that part of me understands the game better than the part of me that can articulate everything, everything <laughs> all the time. Yeah. So, and my third resolution uh, is to pay attention to what is actually winning games, especially when I lose. Uh, I end up in index pretty often where on paper it seems like they should be pretty darn good, but then I'll, I'll, they won't do very well. And I won't really understand why. And then the next time I end up in them, it's like, well, again, <laughs> uh, Combray has been like that for me. Because obviously Combray is really great most a lot of the time. But I'll end up with like a deck with like six Longhorns and then two Grotos favorites and then a bunch of cards in between. And then I'll have a couple of draw strains. So it's like, this seems like it should be good. Uh, I don't like it, but it really seems like it should be good because it's playing all of the best cards in the format. And then it just seems like when I'm in the games, it's like, I don't seem to have a real plan for winning. winning. I don't know what's going on, but it's not it's not going well. Uh, yeah. Even the games I'm winning don't feel good, but I did everything right. So this kind of ties into the trust your instincts and kind of kind of thing, too. But in those games, uh, my focus is actually usually in the wrong place. It's not why is my deck not working? It's working fine. Uh, it's not working as well as my opponent's deck. And that's the problem. And uh, paying attention to why my opponents are doing well uh, and really basically never chalking it up to luck unless it's obviously luck, uh, I think is a practice that I want to be in more of, uh, is to uh, focus more on what my opponents are doing than what I'm doing. Because I'm fine. Like, I'm pretty good at Eternal at this point in general. Uh, I can take care of myself as far as playing a deck reasonably well, mm-hmm. but I am not, I'm often not giving my opponents enough credit for, for doing things in a purposeful way, especially if they seem to be a little inexperienced and have some cards in their deck that I definitely wouldn't be playing. Then the part of me, despite my, like all, all of my best advice to myself is like, well, I can kind of dismiss the rest of the things that they're doing as well. But it's not fair because it's still a person who is playing the best game that they can and they might not be making all of the best decisions, but they've got a plan to win that game. And sometimes it works. And making sure not to ignore the fact that they won a game in some unusual way, uh, just because it's not the way that I would normally win a game, um, I think it's, it's a, I think that's a, a better habit to get into. That's one of the main things that I don't think I do enough is uh, is giving opponents credit and paying attention to what their strategy was and incorporating it into my game the next time I draft. So yeah. I don't really want, I don't really have any more to say about that one. Yeah, no, this is another one that resonates with me. And the way that it does for me is there are a number of quote-unquote good cards in this format that like whenever my opponent plays seem to do really well. And then when I play, seem to do nothing. And I have a lot of trouble figuring out why that is. Like one of those cards is like Long Tail Cavalry, where it's just everyone is higher on that card than I am. And I've seen it do crazy stuff. But the card just never does anything for me, and I don't particularly like the card. And I don't know if it's like my play style is wrong, or like if I'm doing something wrong. And Immortalize is almost that card, is almost like that for me. It's like I don't understand how my opponents always have like great decimate targets for it. And then when I have it, it's like bad dark return. It's one of those things, it's like, is the card not as good as people think, or am I playing it wrong? And how can I expand my play range 
to make to optimize these even good cards and i have a lot of trouble figuring figuring that out i think it's one of the that's one of the hardest things for me is like figuring out how to ex expand the types of decks and cards that i'm able to play well yeah because like i i can play the game i i do know how to play eternal i can play certain strategies very well and have a lot of success with it but i think and i guess i'll talk about this a little bit later in one of my resolutions but i feel like i have a a narrower range than i should and i'm sure. i have i haven't figured out how to expand that yet yeah unfortunately when you're playing against an opponent doing something well that you're not used to doing you don't get to see the draft part of their game you know you don't yes. get to see where the how they got there and how they were pri prioritizing cards that uh, let them end up in that deck so there's a big piece of the puzzle missing there's only so much that you can learn which i guess is where watching you know good streamers uh comes in would you like to share some of your resolutions yeah i i think i'll switch my order up a little bit and i'll start with the the one I had is number three, because it kind of is what I was just talking about. And that's uh, figuring out how to be more consistent. I think one of, and I don't know exactly why this is, but I tend to be a very streaky player in that where I got four of five drafts were seven wins and my other draft was five wins that really pushed me into the top 20. Before that, I went about three and 15. And it was just like, and then before that, I had a few good seven one runs. And then before that, I had another horrendous streak where I couldn't even get to three wins. And this is kind of like both your one and three where, you know, it's like some of it is tilt drafting, but often I don't feel like I'm playing poorly. And it's just like, I don't understand how I can play, do six drafts in a row where I feel like I'm not doing anything horrendously wrong and just have them all be disasters. And then another day where I'm just like, I feel like I'm just forcing fire decks and then having incredible success. And and I think part of it is what I was just saying is I just need to expand my range of decks so I can be able to see maybe like, like you were saying, these like six Combray or these six Longhorns and two Gorda favored, maybe that's not actually a great deck. And so even though I think it should be doing great, there's like some aspect of it that I'm not yet able to see that's causing the problem. And it's not just that I'm an incredibly unlucky player. Yeah. And so I so I guess one of my resolutions this this year is just figuring out how to become a more consistent player. Because I honestly feel like I would just be much more happier if I was a consistently 5-3 player than what I am now, where I just like go through these incredible rough patches where I'm just like can't win a game. Yeah, I think those rough patches are pretty common for m most players. I think there's a small handful of people that seem to be so consistent that they never have them. But also, we're not seeing every game that they play. It might be just that you, when they have that good run, they get such a such a uh, lead on everyone else that mm -hmm. they can have a pretty bad run, and then and then it's it's fine. Yeah, I mean it's a broad one. Figure out how to be more consistent. I think there's probably some some there's al there's always like some specific thing that you can learn from a game. I think, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like I I, I I imagine that a good practice is to say uh, after any disastrous draft, 
no matter how unlucky it seemed like it was and like how bad the matchups were because sometimes matchups are incredibly bad and like you just get stomped by legendaries or whatever and you know there's nothing you can do about that but i think that you can always sort of like take away one thing like you know, I think it's five intrepid longhorns. I think that's how many. I'm not going to put more, <laughs> like, well, whatever it is. Yeah, <laughs> it's sort of like, like, and 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 why, right? Like, uh, the the one of the reasons, one of the reasons that I lost that game was like I drew, I drew three more intrepid longhorns after the part of the game where I wanted to play them, where I really needed to be playing larger units or more versatile units like Spike Tail Kieran, where it had more relevance at the end of the game because there's a time, there's a point in every game where, uh where you would rather draw a spike tail Kieran than an intrepid longhorn, which means mm-hmm. there's a balance there that was off or else you just drew really poorly. Cause of course that happens. Uh, yeah. but being able to identify the games where, um, where you genuinely were unlucky and there was nothing you can do. And the ones where it was like, you know, the, there is something a little bit off about the way my deck is put together is a good skill. And I think would helps with that consistency because then you're not like, frantically oversteering anytime anything happens mm-hmm. you know reducing oversteer is a real good way to be more consistent okay so then uh my number my second one is i didn't really know how to describe this in a in a sentence but i wrote do a better job of thinking about how my opponents will respond to what i'm doing and this is me describing what i think is maybe my biggest leak or biggest misplay is a spacing at a point in the game and then just like assuming my opponent is going to take these do these blocks but not really actually thinking about what my opponent's going to do yeah and then like realizing that oh they don't have to block at all and can just kill me on the crackback it's just like not really actually getting in i i get into points in the game where i just like stop thinking about what my opponent does and i part of it i'm just like oh just make them have it or whatever but i there's just i need to work on making sure what i think my opponent's going to do actually makes sense really like turning the game around and being like okay what would i do if my opponent a spaced here and being like oh well i would not block that's probably my big one of my biggest mistakes that i make in eternal is just like assuming my opponent's gonna do some dumb thing and not really (laughs) not not i'll bet my opponent's a big dummy i think i can count on that (laughs) and not and not really i'll bet they don't even really want to win this game (laughs) yeah not really thinking about what an actual opponent would do (laughs) considering something sort of related to what you're saying is when sometimes when i'm watching a streamer play uh, I will be able to call pretty accurately nearly every card in my opponent's hand, if it's like three or four cards even, sometimes, just because of the way my opponent was playing. But I can so I so rarely apply that same skill to the games that I'm playing, because I get mm-hmm. this sort of tunnel vision about what I'm doing and like my opponent's play patterns. Uh, I, I can still occasionally do a pretty... Um, a, I can, I can uh, call a shot almost in a mysterious way sometimes, but it's actually based on real knowledge, but... You know, sometimes I'll just have an instinct and it's correct, um, but not nearly as often as when I'm watching somebody else play a game. I'm thinking, you know, he's there. You know, my the opponent is 
isn't playing anything right now because they're trying to make a combination where they put a bunch of units in their hand with like a manufacturer and then play a warbrush oni and it's like like that much like this is what they're going to be trying to do over the long term and i know all of my opponent the how can you not know what your opponent is playing at this point but if i were playing that game i wouldn't know and uh so i don't know if that's just like the my brain can't keep that much in it at once uh if mm-hmm. i should be, if i should be like keeping notes on paper while i'm playing like every time my opponent does something mysterious like figure out what the reason for it is and become the most intolerable person to play about play against uh okay. of all because i take all the in my entire t- time every turn analyzing everything i don't know if that's the right thing to do uh, I think I get a lot of friend requests from people when I'm playing that way already that I don't answer because I don't want to <laughs> hear about it. <laughs> like, I was using all of my time. I was thinking. And I'm not young. Maybe if I were younger, <laughs> like, I could, <laughs> I could do it. Uh, but you're, yeah, but you're absolutely right that thinking about what your opponent is likely to actually do based on what they've done up until that point is mandatory. Not even, like, a good skill to have, but it's sort of like, you got to do that. But I yeah. think very few people actually do because it's such a complex game that just executing your own game plan and then responding to just what your opponent last did is enough. That's enough mental space uh, for the most part. But yeah, it's a great thing to get in the habit of doing for sure. Plus, gives you that insight into those weird strategies that are are that your opponent might be using that you wouldn't use yourself normally. Mm-hmm. Um, it also explains a lot of the weird decisions that opponents sometimes make because then, you know, it's never it's never just like, oh, my opponent, you know, did this weird thing because their brain stopped functioning for an entire turn. They've always got some reason for it, even if it wasn't the right decision. You know, right. people have reasons for being too timid and not attacking often enough. Uh, they're afraid of specific things. And sometimes it can tell you a lot about what's in their hand and what they're planning to do. You know, there's that motto sort of like make them have it. And I think I use that as a crutch to really not think about (laughs) what my opponent's doing. And I think part of the problem is that I do have success. Like I have success almost recklessly not playing around combat tricks, (laughs) you know, and I don't, you know, just because most of the time they actually don't have a combat trick doesn't mean that's not something you should be thinking about. I mean, you can't, you can overthink that and then start playing too timidly, for example, because you're trying to play around everything when you really should just make them have it. It's almost sort of the opposite of what you're talking about, where I just play by instinct and I'm just like, uh, you know, I'm not actually really thinking about what my apparent opponent has, but I'm just like sort of pressing my advantage or playing to sort of how I'm feeling the board state is going instead of like really thinking about what my opponent might be doing or what they might have. And... Well, I think the whole advantage of, of playing instinctively and like letting and, and then not having to engage your brain with every aspect of the game is that you can use that extra you can use that extra space to think about what your opponent might be doing. Like the your instincts are probably right, and then you've got like that, and and because you're trusting them, then you can you can use your your thinking engagement to 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 put a little to put a little time into what your opponent might actually have, and if it devastates your game plan, uh, there uh, combat tricks are a little overrated, you know, because the like the usually the worst that can happen is that they trade their combat trick for your unit or something like that, and it's like mm-hmm. oh that was bad, but like 
like if that hadn't happened, they still had the combat trick in hand and then they do something else with it. So like my philosophy on it uh, in general is like, if they have this in hand, does it actually change my strategy? (laughs) You know, like, does it actually keep me from attacking with all of these things? And most of the time it actually doesn't. Yeah. Because then your alternative is I don't attack with all of my things. And then they attack me, <laughs> and now they still have a combat trick. That's a lot worse. Yeah. So might as well attack with all of my things. <laughs> yeah. So that's fine, you know? Like, there's there's reasons to think about what your opponent has, and there's reasons to not really care that much about what your opponent has. And I just want to make a better effort to be cognizant yeah. of those things instead of not really thinking about them and just relying on the fact that I'm a pretty good player. If you add a new aspect into your game, like now I'm starting to think about what my opponents are playing, eventually that becomes instinct because you yeah. get used to you get used to making those de- those decisions and that analysis uh, without working as hard about it. And then I guess my final thing, and I think this is maybe a good way to close this out, is continuing yeah. to work on balancing playing eternal content creation and my life outside uh-huh. of the You know, this is the podcast is almost a year old now, and um, it's been a lot of fun, a lot more work than maybe I had expected. I, I love doing it. I love playing Eternal, but I also I love my job and my family. And it's like figuring out how to balance all those things and figuring out how to, like, say this month, play more Eternal. And then that ended up hurting content creation and other things probably didn't work on the farm as much as I should have this month. And or then with the content creation, there's just like, you know, I I love the game of Eternal and I wish it would continue to grow. And there's just I there's so many gaps in great content, you know, when you compare it to a game like Magic that I just like want someone to fill. And then so I'm always like thinking of new great things that I could be doing. And it's hard realizing that I probably shouldn't do them or can't do them. But the fact that I love the game so much makes me think about them a lot. And so it's, you know, this year is just continuing to figure out how to keep the show going and having fun with Eternal and also, you know, paying those mortgage on this farm we bought. (laughs) (laughs) Some some would say that one of those is way more important than the other one. (laughs) I know. But, you know, I've, I've honestly, it's, I've made so many friends through doing this podcast that, you know, it's like really holds a special, you know, place for yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. I like being part of, the commun- part of the community, too. And I'm very sort of, I probably don't come off as shy while I'm doing the podcast, but I am very much so. And sometimes it's difficult for me to feel like I'm part of the community. But people have really embraced me and been very kind. So I'm really, I'm really glad that I got involved with it, too. All right. So we're going to start the draft here. Pack one, pick one. Cards in contention. There is a permafrost, which is the one primal curse that uh, stuns an enemy unit while it is cursed. There is an eviscerate and an ornamental daggers. And I took permafrost out of this pack. Yeah, I think it's a pretty easy pick. Permafrost and eviscerate do very similar things. One costs one and one costs five. <laughs> yes, exactly. I know. The nice thing about permafrost is a, is a very splashable card. Knowing my draft tendencies, I tend to not stay as open as maybe I should be once I start getting, you know, I talked about this last week with uh, cards like Terriac's Hatchling, where 
I keep getting third Picteriax hatchlings and then thinking I'm in primal or time and screwing myself over. Yeah. Um, all right, so pick two, cards of contention. There is a Cabal Repeater, which is the two shadow three two. You pay three and twist to, um, to give all your units plus one attack and deadly for the turn. There is a Huru Fledgling. There's a Dural's Frost King. There's a Display of Ambition and a Horn of Plenty. And I took the Horn of Plenty from this pack. I usually don't pick up Horn of Plenty that uh, this early. I, I think I'm. I think I value the card a little bit lower than than some folks. I'll certainly play them in my decks, but uh, maybe this is just the thing that I won't be able to. Uh, it's certainly a playable and good card. I just don't think it's as good in a in in the set where where twist isn't a big thing. But also, it's not a boosted card, and so it's kind of cool to be able to pick it up because it's a, an effect that you might not have in your deck at all. So it's certainly a card. Um, that's reasonable to pick up here. I would pick a ball repeater because it's one of my favorite cards and I think it's immensely powerful for a two drop. And also I guess shadow and time are both great uh, yeah. factions. So there's not really a difference there. Um, but Cabal Repeater gives you an effect that you can't get anywhere else too. And also it's on a three, two body. I just feel like it's, just, uh, it, it, maybe it's a little bit one of my pet cards and I overvalue it, but I think it's terrific. So I would, I would take it there. Two things. I, I took the Horn of Plenty for sort of the reasons you outlined in that it's not a boosted card. It's a, a very... And so there's no easy way to get this effect. You know, the only other one is the rare from Fox. And um, maybe I'm just still used to playing it from how many you could get in set six. So there's... I just feel like a lot of my drafts, I'm like, oh, if I had a Horn of Plenty, this would, <laughs> this would be really great. And so that's why I kind of snatched one up when I saw one. And we've talked about this on the podcast before, um, where Cabal Repeater actually was a very underperforming card in set six in our spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. And so I think I have a small, even though people love the card, it just never appeared in seven win deck lists, more more or less. Which was kind of surprising because it's a great card. It look it reads. I mean, it appears in it appears in my deck lists. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, um, and so I I think that actually leads me to just having known that fact leads me to to now undervalue it for it inexplicably not showing up in our spreadsheets. I love having five power and then drawing Cabal Repeater and a board stall. You know, like I'm like, oh, I get to play this, and then all of my units get to attack this turn and they weren't gonna they do they sure do now though <laughs> it's so great and horn of plenty has a similar effect except it's not a unit and it can only be played on five uh yes. so i don't know uh but I, there's nothing wrong with either card you're re- very happy to second pick either one of them of course yeah someone could go back because i did do it a uh, cabal repeater as a card of the week in one of the episodes and ben did give a very good defense on why it's not as good as it looks. Mm-hmm. So maybe when he listens to this episode, he could chime in in Discord and remind sure. me because I agree. It's every time I read it, I forget what he says because it looks so strong. Yeah, but I, I did take Horn of Plenty. So right now okay. we have a Permafrost and a Horn of Plenty. Pick three cards in contention. There's a Seed of Fury, which is the Skycrag um, seat. There is a Fall Short. A seek power, an archive curator, and a Tord test pilot. And I yeah. took the archive curator. I would too. Yeah, archive curator is great. Uh, a lot of what makes Grodos favored great, but it's cheaper and it flies. So yes, 
Though I will say it doesn't block quite as well in this format because there's such big cards like the Draconis. Maybe it's just Draconis. I guess it blocks a Marsh Dragon. It blocks Marsh Dragon fine. It blocks all of those three threes that you that end up littering the board eventually. I mean, it's a pretty defensive card, but uh, and then eventually it gets to peck in a little bit. But it's just yeah. sort of pseudo removal with a body. There's no way it can be a bad card. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, all right, so then pick four cards in contention. There's a Lethri Target Caller, a Tremor Shocker, Razor Quill, and a Learned Herbalist. I took the Tremor Shocker from this pack. I think I probably would take Tremor Shocker there, too. A lot of people are really high on Lethri Target Caller, um, and it's certainly a strong card, but it's also a very difficult to play card, so I don't value it early in a draft sometimes, unless it's a, a clear standout in a pack. Yes. All right, well, we'll, we'll test that result, because pick five, and I is cards in contention. There is a Lethri Target Caller. There is a Seek Power. There is a Huru Fledgling. And then the only time card is a Living Offering, and there's no shot, or there's no Primal cards in this pack. Yeah, I'd, I'd take Lethri Target Caller there, for sure. Yeah. I'd, just yeah. in terms of power level, it's, it's above the others. It is. You know, this was one of the cards where I just... Because there was a Seek Power here, and so I was just debating the Lethride Target Caller or the Seek Power. And, you know, I guess the Lethride Target Caller, you know, is is a strong card. I have seen a couple good Shadow cards passed, so I was thinking maybe Shadow could be open. But I was actually really debating whether I should just stay open because, I don't know, uh, we've talked about this a little bit before, but I feel like Pack 1s, tend to be so worthless that I just like, I almost feel like if I could just leave pack one with four seek powers, I'd be actually pretty happy. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, that's fair. No one can fault you for taking a seek power ever. Uh, but uh, I mean, I think in this case, if you did end up being in shadow, then you would be so happy to have the Lethride target caller. Yeah. I think that's the, that's, that's the entire reasoning there. But you can't really say for any of the other cards in the pack, who fledgling's close, but I wouldn't take it over a seek power. And left and living offering it, uh, is a card that I want to be good, but usually isn't good. Yeah. It's the opposite of Gerda's favorite or archive curator, where <laughs> it gets to silence something and then it's not there anymore. So its whole value is that it gets to be a two-two for two when it doesn't need to be used. There's what? enough two-twos, and there's enough of the silence effect where yeah. you don't need this card to be doing that job, especially after you already have an archive curator. Uh, left right target caller here, just uh, just on power level. Uh, yep. Like I said, it's hard to play, but also if you you don't know whether you're going to be in Xenon or not, and if you do, then you're, you're definitely playing it. Yep, and I, I did take the target caller. Um, okay. All right, and then this next one, it's sort of the same choice, uh, cards of contention. There's a Stronghold Vandal, which is the fire the two fire, three one that shifts for three to kill an enemy attachment. There's a Seek Power, um, and there's the only primal card is a Dragon Breath. The only time card is a Sirocco Elementalist, and the only shadow card is a Fallen Oni. Mm. And so for me, I guess the real question was, you know, first, Dragon Breath, strong primal card. I do have a Permafrost, so there's a chance, you know, that, you know, I could be in primal. Stronghold Vandal has a kill an enemy attachment. We've talked about this a lot. It's a great effect. It's an effect that I kind of want in decks, but I don't have any fire cards yet. And then there's a Seek Power. Um, and in this case, I took the Seek Power here. And I think that's fine. I probably would take the Vandal here, actually. It was pretty much on the same 
for the same reason that uh, the left right target caller. I don't know if I'm necessarily correct that Stronghold Vandal is on that same power level, but I do like the card a lot. Um, I think mm-hmm. the versatility of being able to play it on two as a 3-1 or to keep it in your hand as a way of, of solving some of those some of those icky problems uh, that attachments can cause in this format just make it very very good card to have around. I don't know if I would splash it. It's mo- a lot more splashable than some cards, Um but you do want to be able to play it early, so it's probably never a good splash. But I think really kind of the same logic as as for the Lethroy target caller. I would take it here. Yeah, yeah. I I do find I think the the fact that when you do kill an enemy attachment, you're not getting an immediate body with it mm-hmm. to be more of a negative than I think y- you do. I think I'm yeah. lower on the card than you are. Yeah, and that's totally fair, especially because there's not really any shift synergy to take care to take advantage of um, in this format. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not as good as like Ruin Crawler Yeti, which imme- has an immediate effect on the board for sure, or or the weapon, the spellcraft weapon. But I still think that even though it's not as good as those two cards, it's still real good. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so I did take the seek power there. Pick seven. Uh, cards in contention, there is a Slope Sergeant, and none of the other cards are particularly good. There's no Time card. The Shadow card is Muck Crawler. So, obviously, I took the Slope Sergeant here. Um, yeah, I mean, Slope Sergeant's a real good card, but of course it doesn't work if you don't have the Yetis. Maybe you look at the deck at the end, and you're like, wait, I do have the Yetis. I get to play this stupid thing. Great. <laughs> All right, and then this is uh, pick eight. There's a... <laughs> A wanted poster, a downfall, a safe return. So there's no primal, there's no shadow. Uh, the only straight time card is an accelerate, which I we didn't mention. Um, and, and I took the token here. Yeah, I think that's probably, probably fine. Yeah, because neither wanted poster nor downfall is something that you'll end up like flashing for or going into a faction for. Yeah. Uh, you don't have any reason to... I don't know when you play safe return exactly but i feel like you're gonna need at least a few things like archive curator that are really good when you bring them back into your hand mm-hmm. um, not just as a not just as a reactive protection against removal or something like that so yeah token just gives you some versatility and um, i think it's clearly the best pick here yeah okay great all right so i kind of fill out that pack with a um another justice card and then a couple not not great cards it's like you but ended so, up with a dragon breath too. Uh, yes, I did get a dragon's breath later on. So kind of going into pack two, like my unit suite, I have the left right target color. I have a workshop tinker, archive curator, slope sergeant, and a tremor shocker. My attachments are permafrost and a horn of plenty. I have a seek power and a dragon's breath, and I have my token of vision. So kind of based on this. You know, I think my best cards are probably in the Elysian colors. I didn't really see any further shadow cards after that left right target color. And I saw a little bit of justice near the end, but, you know, nothing. I didn't pick up anything very exciting. All right, so pack two, pick one, cards in contention. There's the Bloodseeker, which is the one shadow two three that deals one damage to you at the end of your turn. And if your opponent has a certain number of cards and you have a certain number of cards in your void, you get plus two, plus two. But that also means that it can turn into a six, seven. There is a mistrust, which is the four justice cursed relic that 
at some point turns into two three twos. There's the Edict of Makar, which is the Shadow Edict that causes a unit not to be able to block or kills a, a Time or Justice card. There's a Pock Pock Slingshot, which is the two Primal 1-3 uh, Spellcraft to play a Snowball weapon. There is an Immortalize and a Sunset Priest. And I took the Immortalize out of this pack. Yeah, I think that's probably right, just on just on sheer power level. It's also a splashable card. Uh, since you're kind of in Primal, like I think Pock Pock Slingshot is worth looking at because it is a really good card. Uh, it's just sort of it's just sort of versatile, good equipment. But uh, I do think, but Immortalize is is better, and you'll probably be able to play it. It's not a strong pack, you know. Yeah. Like for the cards that you have, so Immortalize stands out. Uh, there's a lot of cards I would take over Immortalize there, but they're not in this pack. Yeah, I think the Immortalize stands out as the most splashable card. I'm like not as excited as Edict of Makar and a lot of the Edicts. I mean, especially the Makar one. Even though Time Justice are two great factions to hit, I'm just always nervous about having cards that can be potentially dead in your hand. Yeah, I usually find room for the Edict if my deck is generally strong anyway, and uh, then the Edict... Then I don't need the edict, but when it's good, it'll be incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the decks where I tend to play edicts as the strong, as the ones where the rest of my card quality is pretty high. But if the rest of my card quality is relatively low, then I don't want to put another like card in my deck that's maybe won't even work at all, um, unless I'm also very very short on playables, and then it's just hail mary. <laughs> yeah, but uh, <laughs> um, but I'm a lot more likely to play an Edict of Makar if it's like, you know what, this deck's really strong, but it's probably going to lose to some random nonsense. So I, I might as well play one card that can kill random nonsense. Mm-hmm. All right, so then uh, pick two, cards in contention. There's a Funeral Pyre, which is the three fire, deal two damage to an enemy, uh, decimate, deal two damage to another enemy. There's an Aspirant's Robe, which is the one-time 1-1 one, one summon, create a 1-1 one, one Cultist, Spellcraft Four, play patience and then there's an intrepid longhorn a rainfall accord and a bane wolf and yeah i just, I just sort of i just sort of listed rainfall accord there because you've got some primal cards yeah <laughs> and no, that's, that's a primal a, card <laughs> i agree that shows what the, the your primal choices are which is uh pretty indicative of i think the fox packs yeah and um i so i took the longhorn out of this pack which you know i don't this is sort of speaking of instinct I think this is maybe not... I don't... I, well, I guess, what would you take? Here, let's see. You're not in fire yet at all. Aspirant's Robes isn't a strong card. It's just sort of like a good sort of average space filler card that does a lot of things okay. Got this Immortalized, and so Banewolf is a good 7-drop, but you're probably not going to be short on expensive uh, game-enders. So, uh, like, you would pick the Banewolf if there was nothing better. So, yeah, the chance that this is one of those drafts where you get a thousand Intrepid Longhorns pack passed to you and you, you ended up in Combra even though you weren't planning to uh, makes it worth taking the Longhorn here. So I would probably take the Longhorn, too. That's what I've been doing lately that's what put me in Combra a few times is because um, people will, will pass a, like half a dozen of these things and then it's great and you've got all... The be- one of the best two drops in the whole game. Yeah, and I, I kind of talked about this a few episodes ago with uh, Acclaimed Artisan. I think these like early two-color cards, because people, I think, leave pack one thinking they're in a color, and so, like you said, these get passed 
really late because people are like, oh, I don't want to take this because I'm not in Cambrai yet. And so if you, you can snag a couple of these um, two-color cards early and then really solidify yourself in a deck because they're so strong compared to a lot of the other com commons, the, the single-color commons. And so I've been kind of doing this, where I take an uh, Intrepid Longhorn short or I take an Acclaimed Artisan short just to see if it works out, even if I'm not necessarily in those colors yet. You know, if there's like a Grodal's favorite or something in this, I obviously would take that over that. Or if there was another Immortalized, for example, I would probably take the Immortalize, a second Immortalize here over the Intrepid Longhorn because I'm not sure I'm going to play the Longhorn, but I took the Longhorn here. So then pick three, uh, Cards in Contention. Uh, there's a couple good Primal Uncommons. There's the Brutish Interloper, which is the three Primal 2-4 that has Reckless and grows bigger and then grows even bigger. There is the Tide Caller, which is the three Primal 3-3 that can play a 4-4 thing with charge that sacrifices itself at the end of the turn. There is a Zoltan Brushfang, which is the one-time 1-2 one that eventually gains deadly and then grows. There is a Zoltan Paladin. There is Thunderstrike Raven and a Wilderness Refuge. So the card I took was actually the Zoltan Paladin, which uh, is maybe one of the weakest of the cards we listed. Yeah, it kind of is. I mean, I can see your your reasoning, though, because if you do end up in Combray, then it's, it, you know, then it's a two drop and it's playable. Um, what I always, what I find happening a lot of the time is that if I end up in Combray, then um, then there's there's so many superior two drops that I end up cutting the Sultan Paladin a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. So it's almost not worth picking one up, even if you know it's going to be playable later. It, it's not like there's a lot of great alternatives in this pack, but I think I would actually take the Tide Collar. I, I don't know if that's right, but again trying to trust my instincts and if there's a chance that i might play primal and if there's a chance that it might be one of the main colors i really like tide collar even if it just once hits your opponent in the face with a living wave it was way better than a three three for three i wouldn't yes. take the brutish interloper because uh, that's restricted to a very small number of decks i think that are able to play it successfully it needs a lot of support to be good because it has Reckless, so often it just dies. <laughs> yeah. um, but I love Tidecaller. Uh, I, I, I probably more than I should, because uh, I've had a lot of success with it in the last format, when the when the packs were, were reversed, um, of just sort of gradually wearing people down with waves. And it's not that hard to activate it a couple of times, and then it's ridiculous for a three-drop. But mm -hmm. uh, I guess I could be considering Thunderclaw Raven if I'm looking at three-drops. Well, I like Tidecaller a lot better than Thunderclaw Raven. Yeah. Um, Anyway, but yeah, and then the other thing is Zoltan Brushfang. You're, you're pretty sure you're going to be in time at this point, but again, it's a card that needs a lot of support to be good. Uh, like, I've had Zoltan Brushfang in a deck with, like, three ornamental daggers, and then it was very, very, very good. But if you don't have that kind of support for it, then it's not really great. Then it's a one-two. Yeah, I exactly. I This shows how hard it is for me to pick a Zoltan Brushfang since I picked a Zoltan Paladin over it. Yeah, Assault and Brushfang in your main faction for sure. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, you might get that support later for it, you know? You put you throw a draw strength on it, it's like, oh, now it's really good. It's a 3-4 with uh, with Deadly. Cool, yeah. but you don't have that in your deck yet. You have no idea if you're going to get the kind of support you need to make it a good card. Yeah, Whereas and we're going to have... Paladin is at least always going to be a 3-2. And I don't know, I think people... I don't, I don't know if this is true. I feel like people underrate Sultan Paladin. I mean, the fact that it has three attack is 
you know, it's it it's kind, it it's kind for of a doing a Longhorn impression there. It is. Uh, it is. And again, the re- the real reason that I'm not I wouldn't take it there isn't because it's not a good two drop. It's because I'm almost certainly going to end up with too many two drops if I'm in Combray specifically. All right. So then going into pick four cards in contention, there is another Sultan Brushfang. Sure is. There, <laughs> <laughs> there is a Linrai Evangel because uh, Hat's going to make this uh, primal deck work. Uh-huh. There is a, a Nahid's Faithful, a Yeti, Yeti Griffin Rider, a Metal, and then a card that Hats didn't mention in these cards in contention. There's a Prancing Griffin, and that is the card I took, actually. This is probably not a, a defensible pick. I think these last two picks are probably showing I was a little too geared in on this Longhorn com- uh, the Longhorn that I took. I don't know. I, like I said, I'd rather take a Prancing Griffin than a Sultan Brushfang. I do see your point about... Um, maybe having taken a couple of these primal cards, but the fact that I passed the tide caller makes it, you know, even harder for me to take, say the Lin Rai Evangel here, Um, which I don't know if that's, if that should affect my decision, but it is, you know, it's one of those things that happens. You have to have enough playables at the end of the day. So if you split your picks too far into the draft, then it becomes hard to assemble a deck. So in that sense, yeah, it should it should influence your picks. I do think that you were probably trying too hard to make Combray work after one uh, Intrepid Longhorn. However, I don't think that's necessarily wrong because sometimes it does work out. It's You probably have enough playables if you go into Combray one way or another. Um, you're not getting like really strong picks in those colors, but you're also not getting really strong picks in any colors. Now, He's yeah. Faithful is probably the most powerful card here, but it's a dual faction card, and so of course it is. And you're not necess- you're, there's no reason to think that you're going to be playing Shadow here. I just included it as the most powerful card in the pack. I do think I will be in time, but like you said, you know, I don't know. It's, it's still hard to pick, and it's a card that you kind of do want a little bit of support for, even for though it's very he's powerful. Faithful. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Although it's fine as a 2-1 two, two, for 1, even if you play it on turn 2 or 3 with Lifesteal. Yeah. It's fine. And then sometimes it's way, way better than that. Plus, you've got an Immortalize. I could have taken a Metal, but you, I feel like you always get enough Metals. I think 1 is like the maximum number you usually want to play in a deck anyway, and then it's pretty easy to end up with 2 or 3. So I probably should have taken the Brush Fang here. I don't know. Maybe. But. I probably would have taken Linrai Evangel, but I'm, maybe I'm trying too hard to make a Primal deck work. But it, may, it turns on your slope, Sergeant. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it does. Right? We'll go through a, a couple more picks here. So this Let's is see. five of pack two. Cards sure. in contention. There is the Edict of Linrai, which is the primal edict that yep. st- stuns unit or turns it into an O1. Uh, there is a Metal. There's a Wonderlust Kirin. There's a Torture. And there's a Wilderness Refuge. And so I finally broke down and took the Metal out of this pack. I think it's fine. I don't know. I, I think I'm at this point in the draft, I'm still probably thinking that metal is not going to be worth all that much. Like you'll end up with, you can only play so many combat tricks in your deck and metal's an only okay one. And you don't have a single card so far that has mastery or anything, you know, like yeah. the best that it's going to be is you're attacking your six, six tremor shocker into some stuff and maybe yes. you double block and you metal and get rid of them. Like that's as good as it's going to be right now. Uh, which is not bad, but also, eh, I don't know. It's only okay. Is it worth a card slot? I'm not sure. So, like, assuming, so would you, assuming you've taken, like, say, the Linrai Evangel and the Tidecaller, does that influence what you would pick? Would you take the Edict of Linrai here? 
I'd probably take the torture here. Like the, 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 the cards that you have here. Yeah, I think it's the best card here. But like I probably don't have all of, I don't know, I probably don't have all of the justice cards. But let's let's say just looking at this pack like with the cards that you definitely have, in that case, probably still the torture. <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't have any removal at this point. And yeah. if you're in time, you might be able to splash some things pretty easily. So I don't know. Yeah, I'm probably still well, the if torture. I'm, if we're talking about splashing, I'd rather splash my permafrost. Oh, right. I guess that's true. I'm sorry. No, you know what? It's it's too hard to think about this in terms of like what I might have had and then uh, what you have and so yeah. forth. So, yeah, I mean, metal's fine. I just don't think, I mean, I don't know if it ended up making your final deck or not, but it feels early to take a, a metal. I think I'm still at this point, like part, like a third of the way pack two. Just trying to get the most powerful cards and then and then figuring it out. But you're right. Yeah, if you're splashing, it would be permafrost instead. So it would be better to just sort of be in primal now. Might be worth just taking the edict of Linrai. All right. So then uh, pick six cards in contention. There's a Grodobd Evangel. There's a Crowd Queller and an Ancient Manual. And I took the Evangel. Obviously, I was still hoping to be time, even though I haven't taken very many time cards these last few packs. So time was... hasn't been that strong this 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 pack. But uh, yeah. to be fair, none of the none of the colors have been. So I was very excited to see the Evangel here, actually. Yeah, Evangel's great there. Yeah, I really think the only consideration otherwise would be Ancient Manual to make your splashing easier. But I think Evangel's way better than that because, uh, as we discussed some some fifteen or sixteen episodes ago, which is not the right number. <laughs> having on faction having an evangel in your main faction makes it easier for you to put more sigils of your splash faction in yes exactly all right and then so pick seven cards of contention there is a yeti traditionalist a sky horror draconis a yeti griffin rider you'll see a theme here and then a storm of feathers yeah and um i did take the storm of feathers yeah See, I'm just continuing to see that Primal's pretty open, so I would probably have taken one of the Primal cards, and I'm, I would probably be ending up uh, Time Primal Yes. at this point. And, yeah, just following my instincts. And I'd probably take Draconis here, and, I, and I'd probably be, feel fine about that. Like, you've definitely got, like, the Longhorn and some Justice cards here, um, but it's really just the Longhorn, isn't it, at this point? Yeah, that's particularly good, yes. Whereas if you were open to Primal, you'd have only slightly better cards but they would be slightly better i agree you know i think i do have this bias against primal that's hard for me to get it's out fair of. it's fair to have that bias because we're trapped in a bad primal deck sucks <laughs> yeah exactly where i'm just like oh I, I primal's open and then i take some primal cards and it just doesn't come into turn into a deck that can win games and sometimes this is kind of like the Combray decks we were talking about. There are just some primal decks where I'm like, this seems like a fine deck, and then it just like I can't get a win with it, and I'm like not totally sure why. I have somehow had that experience less. Like I'll end up with a primal deck where it seems crazy, like well, didn't end up with anything in this deck, and then it does really well. Somehow yeah. the primal cards overperform to what they look like. That has happened to me repeatedly. But I've mm -hmm. also ended up in really, really bad primal decks that don't seem to do anything at all. So that's also a thing that happened. Our final pick, pick eight, cards in contention. There is an Edict of Kodash, which is the Justice Edict that silences a unit or kills a fire or shadow unit. There's an Ardent Convert, a Zultan Paladin, and a Proselytize. I took the Edict of Kodash here. I think that's defensible for sure. I mean, it's worth noticing that you've got 
a horn of plenty and therefore proselytizes better than it than it is by itself. But yeah, and the convert a little bit too. Yeah, convert's also better for sure. I I, I do avoid convert because I think it's a, a really really low impact card unless it's got a lot of help. But um, horn of plenty makes it better, and then. Uh, Predator's Instinct makes it a lot better, and then the the handful of other cards. But I'm definitely way down on it, and I didn't start high on it. Proselytize like makes four two twos if you have a Horn of Plenty out. That's pretty good. No, that's very true. And so that that was kind of my question: is like, should I take one of these mediocre time cards? Even though I've been like forcing Justice, I realize that Justice hasn't exactly been like super open uh, this pack. But I do think Edict of Kodash is probably a better card than proselytize and if you assume i'm not in primal and not splashing this permafrost i don't have any removal and i i didn't get a grodas favored so i don't my only sort of silence is the archive curator yeah um so that was kind of what what led me towards leaning towards the edict of kodash here I think Edict of Kodosh is totally fine here, um, but I do think there's an argument for the for a proselytize. It's not a, like a massively strong card, uh, but it, this does look like the kind of deck where you're going to be trying to go wide. I don't mm-hmm. even know why, but it, that's what it looks like to me. It doesn't seem like you're going to have a lot of power concentrated in a couple of, of units, you know. So it's going to be you're you're going to have a good shot at winning games by just going wide and swarming them. And proselytize isn't an effect fact that you can duplicate easily there's not a lot of token generation in this set so i think it's what i would go with here but edict of kodash is a totally fine card there's nothing wrong with taking it there yeah no i i agree with you like my only power card is a tremor shocker right now so right i'm gonna have to come up as the deck stands right now i'm gonna have to come up with sort of more unique ways to to win games that's it i i was not punished with this and i ended up i think in a pretty good combray deck as one does. All right, so I think we'll end our show here. So yeah, that's our show. Thank you again to all our patrons for making the show a success. And for those of you who are not patrons, a reminder to give us a five-star rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, so people can find out about the show. Join us in our Discord, link in the show notes, and finally, thumbs up all of Raven Dragon's Reddit posts. And don't forget to send in all your 7-win deck lists you do this week to farmingeternal at gmail.com or the Discord. And remember to keep on farming. Have a good night. Have a good night. Bye.